Thank you, worship team, and you are the worship team, and welcome this morning, and welcome online. He is worthy. What a, what a privilege to remind ourselves as we tell God, He is worthy. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21, we're at the second last book of the Bible today. If you've been following in our prophecy series recently, uh, last week, you may recall, we talked about heaven and hell and how you can know for sure that you will be in heaven one moment after you die. Isn't that amazing? If for any reason you are uncertain about where you will be one moment after you die, please review, uh, rewatch, or re-listen or take a look or ask somebody here so that you can know for sure where you'll be one moment after you die. It's the most important issue. Today, as we continue in chapter 21, we are looking at heaven specifically. And I realize a title like what heaven is like is kind of a bold claim since none of us have been there. But what we read is what God has actually told us. So what we are told, we are supposed to know. And as we do, there will be things that you may have assumed or thought about heaven that may not be so. Some you will have confirmed, yes, that is the way it is. Some things will be hard or difficult to understand and we won't be able to be sure. But what we are told, we are invited to know. And so it is our privilege. Everything that we, we read about heaven should be exciting because this is where we as believers in Christ will be forever. And this life will be so tiny compared to where we will be forever. Revelation 21 and 22 are unique in the scripture in that they describe what we can call the eternal state. Heaven in its eternal state. And there is some difference between that and what we might call heaven now because if you remember in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 21, we read this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so there is something very new about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Everything we've been studying so far in this series, except for the, I guess, the last part of our study last week, has been about what God is doing on this earth. Let's just review that a little bit. We called it the seven dispensations. That's the, the way uh, Bible scholars who understand the scripture in this literal way often depict it. And it depicts time, first of all, from creation. That's the start of time for mankind on earth, right? And then all the way to eternity, this point. And everything in between has is the flow of history in the scripture, and some of which is, is prophecy. And we're not looking through this chart right now. It's available at the back, and I think uh, Pastor Seth is going to link it for those of you who are watching online if you'd like to do a little bit more study in this. But where are we right now? We are, we are someplace in this church age, 
And so some of what we have read in Scripture is, of course, history, and some is prophecy, but it's all about this earth. And so the question is, what is next after this timeline is completed? That's the eternal state. That's Revelation 21 and 22. And so we're going to be thinking specifically about what heaven is like uh, forever. So it raises this question, so what is heaven like now? So let's back up a little bit in some of this is, in a sense, review, and that is, what happens to believers now when we as believers die? Where are they? They are in heaven, and the word heaven is appropriate, uh, whether it's speaking of heaven now or heaven in the eternal state. Another term, though, that is used is the term uh, paradise, paradise. So let's review a little bit some things we know about heaven now. Believers are with Christ in heaven, paradise, immediately after death. So Jesus, this is when he was hanging on the cross, speaking to that thief on the cross who responded in faith and, he sa- and said to him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. There is no purgatory. There is no soul sleep. There is no delay. We are immediately at death with Christ. And then Jesus prayed. Do you remember one of the things, last things he said was, into, Father, into your hands I commit my, what? Spirit. And so God and his, Christ in his spirit went to heaven. A few years later, Stephen, the uh, godly man who was stoned to death for his faith, said in those final moments, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and who? Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. So, indeed, Jesus was in heaven. And then Stephen said the same thing Jesus did and said, um, receive my spirit. Some years later, Paul is writing in Corinthians, and describing the very unique experience that the Apostle Paul had when it says he was caught up into the third heaven. And he says, I'm not sure if I was in the body or if this is a vision, but this is what I saw. I was caught up to where? Paradise. And heard inexpressible things. So you could say that Paul is the one individual on earth who had truly seen heaven. He saw and heard inexpressible things. And it radically changed Paul so that from this point on, he was fearless about death, as we should be. Because he had seen it. And so he no longer had any fear of death. In fact, a couple different times he mentioned that and said, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Because, I mean, I know what that's like, he says. Or to the Philippians, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. And he told us those things. God put it in the scripture so that we would be fearless about death. We would be confident that we would be forever with Christ the moment we die. So we are in heaven the moment we die. Nothing to fear, everything to look forward to. We are complete in heaven, you can say, because we are ultimately uh, spiritual beings. But what if we studied, as we, as we came to that important study, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, about the rapture, we learned that at the end of this age, 
the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive will be caught up and also changed, and we're all going to get these new bodies, a new, perfect, glorified, immortal, but literal, physical bodies. And we know pretty much what it's like because that's what Jesus had when he was raised from the dead and for those weeks he was still on earth after till he ascended. So we will have true bodies like Christ. So heaven is real, it's immediate. We'll be with Christ. But after we receive the new body, what all changes? Well, it's different to have a new body in heaven. And it's possible that what we study about the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem today is where we will actually be during that final dispensation, the millennium. Because verse 2 says the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It doesn't say that that's the moment he creates the new Jerusalem, but it's coming down then. So perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps that is where we have been in our new bodies during that final stage of human uh, existence. Uh, on earth, that is, but we are in heaven. And so Revelation 21 and 22 now describe the eternal heaven for all believers where all believers of all times are now together, all have the new body, and we are in the new heavens, the new earth, a new Jerusalem. So this is our eternal destination. And it seems that we will, and we'll see this now, we will live in a city in the new heavens and new earth. So it's like Milwaukee is a city on the planet earth, the new Jerusalem is a city in the new heavens and new earth. This had always been God's plan. Already in the Old Testament, he described it to Isaiah. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. There's, a, there's something brand new, a new heavens, a new earth. Very literally stated, it's coming. This is still 600 plus years before Christ. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your name and descendants will endure, so there will still be a Jewish identity, speaking to the Jewish people. And that new earth will endure. It's going to be the one that's forever. Isaiah didn't know everything about it, of course, we still don't, but God told a little bit more in the New Testament to Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So there is some kind of a burning off of the old and a creation or restoration of the new. A verse later, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We looked at the, that a little bit last week as we uh, studied through this chapter, verses 1 through 8. And so there's, there's, that's why in verse 4, the tears are gone, the death is gone, the mourning is gone, the crying is gone, because everything new and righteousness is permanent in this new heaven and new earth. Now, last week I had uh, suggested that indeed the God who called this entire universe into being by his word could completely annihilate, annihilate, eradicate, make it poof, disappear, and completely start over. God could do that. He did it the first time, he can do it again. But let's at least consider if it's possible that what he will do is not to completely destroy 
the existing universe, but rather to restore it to perfection. Uh, the terminology that Peter used, actually these words pass away and destroy, uh, laid bare, uh, don't have to mean that it actually is completely out of existence, but it could be a, a restoration. So um, it, it's just part of our curiosity as, as Bible students have read this to say, what if God is going to actually restore and perfect our universe? Uh, and, and, the, and the parts of the universe that are burning down now will stop burning down. And this earth that is cursed by sin is no longer to be cursed uh, by sin. God is known for resurrecting without eradicating. When we think about our resurrection body, we've, we've always made the important point that this is what, what Christ does when he resur- what God does when he resurrects us is he resurrects this old body. The tomb was empty, wasn't it? They didn't discard Jesus' old body, and then God created a a spiritual new one. And the God who created us is also able to call together all the molecules, wherever they're dispersed through cremation or whatever, God is able to call together those molecules because resurrection takes place as a reconstitution, a renewal of this old body. Does Possibly, does God do the same thing with the universe? And as we take a look at a couple of passages, realize this is, not, this is not a crucial doctrine, whether he completely starts over or whether he is restoring, but it just uh, gives us indications to, to think through. Matthew, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. The, the word renewal sounds a little different than something that had gone out of existence. Peter said, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. Or Paul said in Romans, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So is perhaps this indicating that it's not going to be just destroyed, but it's all going to be made new and sinless. It's, it's you could say, burnt off. One of the agricultural practices in Kansas and many uh, areas is that in certain situations you burn off the old wheat stubble or other uh, dried growth. I just helped my brother do that a number of years ago. And, and you burn it off with a controlled burn and then it comes back new. Maybe. Maybe when John sees the new Jerusalem coming down upon the new earth, it is actually a completely restored and perfected and sinless and absent the curse, perfect earth. Regardless, chapter 21 and 22 are the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, and this is where we will literally be. Pick it up in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And we saw last week the bride here is not limited to the church, but it's all believers because it describes the city, the new Jerusalem. And he carried me, verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So it's picking up where verse 2 left off. So the city is is coming down. It's the new Jerusalem. So somewhere on this new earth, uh, John is given the privilege of seeing in advance, seeing in advance a vision of what this eternal heaven 
is like. And before John described it, it seems this is what Jesus was prophesying back when he talked to the disciples just before the cross. When he said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. This is exciting, of course. We, we think of, of heaven, because this is heaven, because this is where God has his house. The word house describes a place where somebody lives. During this eternity, the eternal state, where does God live? Remember last week, verse 3? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's, it's, this is the Father's house. This is the new Jerusalem. It's where God lives. We often think of going to live with God, and that's correct, but in a sense, really, God is coming to live with us. What a privilege, what, a, what an honor that now we will be living together with him. And the passage said that in my father's house are many dwelling places or rooms. Or some of you, did, you, did some of you grow up with the translation says many mansions? Nothing wrong with that either. Because this is way beyond any mansion you could, you could ever think of when we think of where we will be dwelling in heaven. Sometimes, you know, we, we go away on a vacation or something, and, and have you found yourself that you, you sometimes like to splurge a little, and you stay at places you know you could never afford otherwise? <laughs> you know, so just for this week or just for this weekend, you know, you're, you're spending the money to be in this resort and this incredible uh, bed and breakfast or whatever it is, and you know it's just kind of a temporary thing, but we're going to live in the most magnificent dwelling place that you could possibly imagine. In my father's house are many rooms. It really refers to individual dwellings. A place to call your own in some unique sense. Maybe apartments would be a good way to translate it. That there will be a place to come, to come home to. I don't know, and I don't want to assume I know it at all, but the impression, obviously, about heaven that I think we need to often correct in our minds is that it is very human and literal and real. It's not just fluffy clouds. And we, we get this impression sometimes, it's almost like you know, you're coming out of anesthesia and you'll be in this resting in peace thing or whatever. Something we will never be more alive, never more real, never more physical in a perfect earth, in a perfect city, in a perfect sense. Your new address is this incredible city. This isn't the, some people write off Revelation, well, that's all symbolic. Wait, you got to write off a lot of stuff. This isn't the only place he even talked about the city Writer to Hebrews says, For he, in referring to Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Does that sound like a New Jerusalem to you? Yeah. Abraham was looking forward to this city. Abraham received these incredible promises, the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 onward, and you're going to be a blessing to the whole world, and all this stuff happened on earth. But you know what didn't happen on earth? 
He did not experience this city. He lived in tents. He, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren going to the 12 tribes of Israel, they all lived in the promised land, but actually it wasn't even their land yet. They lived there like foreigners in temporary dwellings. They didn't get, get a big, nice dwelling. Abraham, are you okay with that? I mean, you lived your whole life and you didn't really get to... Exp- a couple of verses later, it says, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So we're going to be in that city with, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, And Abraham was okay that he went through this life and didn't experience or achieve or acquire and enjoy everything that we think somehow we should have. Because he wasn't just focused on this life, he was focused on the next. He was looking forward to heaven. What are you really looking forward to? We we sometimes can be eternal optimists about this earth. And it's not too well-founded, is it? It's like, you know... Finally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retire, and, and in retirement, you know, I can do only fun things and quit working, and, 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 and God, you know, owes me kind of to, to have an, enough money and good health, and I'm going to really enjoy. We know that isn't the story that everybody gets to, to read and write about themselves, is it? Are we okay with tents and frustrations? And knowing there'll be unanswered prayers yet as we go to our deathbed. Because we are trusting and anticipating the promises of God about eternity. Where we will be in a perfect place, in a perfect city, forever in the very presence of God. And all the stuff that bothers us now, all of which is a result of sin, will be no more. This last passage in Hebrews, just take one more look. It says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You don't know another way of saying that. It's a a way of saying things. God God is proud. He's proud to be called our God. He's proud of us. I saved him. I saved her. God's looking, it's not just we're supposed to look forward to seeing God in heaven. God is looking forward to his fellowship with us in heaven. He's looking forward to being with you, not just us looking forward to being with him. He's proud of us. I saved this one. I saved Nate back there by my grace. (laughs) He's proud of us. You see, he created us for relationship. From the very beginning, he created us for relationship, knowing that this earth would be sinful. That timeline would be be marred by sin. Right now, everything about God's relationship with us, if you think about the relationship from God's perspective, is marred by sin. And you and I as believers and followers and people who who carve out this time to be worshiping, we, we try, don't we? We try, we try to make that relationship better and better. We're always thinking, I need, I need to really improve this relationship. But we know what happens because we sit down with his word and we're giving, the, we're giving this thing an honest effort. We sit down with his word and, and sometimes it's kind of hard to understand. And then, ding, we get a Facebook notification. 
And before you know it, we spent the next 10 minutes scrolling through political drivel and, and nonsense memes when we could have been fellowshipping with Almighty God. That's just, that's just who we are. It's a struggle, and, and yet he loves us all the way through it, and he loves us perfectly in spite of it. But it's kind of like loving a two-year-old for God. Two-year-olds, you realize, are basically just cute bundles of total selfishness. They contribute very little, except their cuteness. Don't you suppose God looks forward to an adult relationship with us where we're no longer selfish? We're no longer distracted? We're no longer just giving him our list of selfish, greedy prayers? Does it excite you to know that God will be so proud to dwell with you? And in light of that eternal worldview, is it okay if we don't get it all down here? Is it okay if we live with frustrations and, and, and unanswered prayer because we are looking forward to a city like this? Because this, this life is at most a hundred years short. And that is forever. So John, tell me about this city. John, can you, can, you got to see this in this vision from Christ. Can you tell me what heaven is like? Because it's our future home. Verse 11. It shone, this city. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. Like a jasper, clear as crystal. Whatever that is, glory of God, brilliant, clear crystal, it's going to blow our mind, mind to just see it. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we're going to get a picture of this city. It's got massive walls. And 12 gates where there are 12 angels. The gates are named by the tribes of Israel. And the foundations are named by the apostles. 12 gates. First of all, we're probably going to have to drop that idea that there's Peter on a tiny cloud with a tiny little gate letting people in one by one. Can't defend that one anymore. There's 12 gates. And there's angels at the gates. Later on in verse 25, we're going to see, and the gates are never shut. So no one's opening the gate to let people in. Because you know what gates do? They keep bad people out. Or they keep, they keep, it, keep it like, you know, you can only be in this time and not that time. The gates are never going to be closed. Because everyone in there is a believer. And they can come and go. We can come and go as we please. There's the names of the 12 tribes, so first we start thinking, well, this is like a Jewish city, and it is, in many ways, because God had a special plan for Israel. But then it also had the foundation of the 12 apostles, foundation stones were labeled with the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and they were the founders of the church. So it's a Jewish and a Gentile city. 
Israel's always had a special place in God's heart because he called them to be a special people, and they followed him. Think of this. They followed him all those years, the, the, the sincere ones, having only the first five books of the Bible. And if that's all you had in the Bible, you, you would read it even less than you do now, right? It's, it's tough sometimes getting through the Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that kind of thing. But they followed what they knew. They loved. They brought the sacrifices. And they thanked God for forgiveness, even though they didn't even know Jesus like we do. And so God's going to honor the Jewish people throughout heaven for their faithfulness in following him. And then the 12 apostles get, get a, a, each get a foundation stone named after them. If uh, you recall some of you from Ephesians 2, that uh, Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is like a foundation foundation stones of the apostles and Jesus the chief cornerstone. So there really is a special place in God's heart for these 12 men who, who followed Jesus on earth. And you could maybe envy them, except of course you know James was martyred by Herod and Jesus said Peter would be martyred and die. And tradition says that actually most of the disciples, those 12 disciples died martyrs' deaths. We don't know that for sure, but that's what some of the Early tradition says they will be honored forever on those foundations. How, how big is this city? Verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, or you may have the word furlongs, in length, and as wide and, here's new, and as high as it is long. He measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measure, which is also the angel's, which what the angel was using. A furlong, or stadia, is a Greek measurement that's just barely over 600 feet, and you do the math, and you end up with 1,380 or about 1,400 square miles. So it's laid out in a square, and so if we were to impose it on the United States, of course it won't be over the United States in the New Earth, but it'd be a pretty big, you can get a lot of people. You can get a lot of people in there, even if it was just a two-dimensional city, like all of our cities are flat and two-dimensional, but what is this city? It's also 1,400 miles high. So if you start to try to picture it, uh, maybe it's a cube. Now... How many people can you get in that when you, when you go 1,400 miles into the sky? Or some have said maybe it's like a pyramid. It'd still be the same height. And, and some have thought maybe you know, the throne of God is at the top and there's later on reference to the river of life that flows and you drink from it. I, we don't know all these things, but these are literal measurements. And we've learned that when uh, the Bible speaks in terms that make sense literally, we should not seek some non-literal sense of that. The walls are massive. Uh, these cubits come out to 72 yards thick. That's the thickness of the wall. I mean, it's virtually a, a football field. Uh, some of you, if you're in the maybe 20- or 30-year-old category, may have grown up with the uh, contemporary Christian group Audio Adrenaline singing a song called Big House. 
Some of you are going to start humming here in a little bit. It's a big, big house with lots of lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, and a big, big yard where we can play football. Hey, a lot of you did listen to Audio Adrenaline. <laughs> it's not that far off. I can't guarantee the football thing, but it's clearly it's big. It can hold millions upon millions of people. It's not only big, it's beautiful. The wall, verse 18. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysophrase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. You may have slightly different words, but give me credit for trying mine. Uh, it's beautiful. It's colorful. Whatever these, whatever these jewels represent, they're gorgeous. God loves color. On Tuesday, our day off for so on, I uh, spent the day driving around Holy Hill and down to Waukesha County and seeing the fall colors, something old people do. Um, I'm now going to show you all my best pictures because you didn't have enough on Facebook. So, no, just kidding. God loves color. And think about this. Think about the people who spent their entire life blind. This is the first thing they're going to see. I mean, we who have sight have seen a lot of beautiful things. I love to travel. I love to see parts of the world, parts of the, the United States I haven't seen before. In a couple of weeks from now, Persona and I are going to be in, uh, in lower Utah looking at in some of those uh, southwest national parks we haven't been to before. I just love seeing how beautiful this earth is. Can I, I can't even imagine what the new earth will be like. The 12 gates, verse 21, were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. That's a big pearl. The great street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Uh, scientists say you can't actually make pure, pure gold, and so if you have a gold bar, it's 99.9. At least mine are. I don't know about yours, but... I <laughs> can you make gold transparent? God can. So pure, it's clear. The street's paved with gold. Think about all the greatness of the city and you begin to think. You know, the old Jerusalem. What was the centerpiece of the old Jerusalem in the time of Solomon? The temple. Solomon built this incredible temple and you read about it in First Kings. and You know, nothing could be too magnificent for his God because Solomon knew how great God was. And so you begin to picture, now, if you've got a, a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, you know what? This temple is going to be mind-blowing. Let's see. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. <laughs> Duh. What are temples for? Temples have been for earth, on a sinful earth, when, when God is showing his holiness, 
in the holy of holies and and so that man can begin to approach and understand what it's like to be in the presence of God, even if it's just that one priest once a year who comes in under the sacrifice of the blood, there'll be no need for a temple. Because we are then with God and we are holy. God first had designed and given instructions to Moses to build the tabernacle, the movable worship place. And Exodus 40, verse 34 says that God's glory filled it when it was done. God's glory filled it. Or, or Solomon's temple after it was built and dedicated, 2 Chronicles 7, 1 and 2. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. We won't need to go to the temple in the New Jerusalem because God is the temple. The Lamb is the temple. We are always with Him. The city does not need, verse 23, the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. So in the presence of God, there is all this light that is the temple light because (laughs) God is the temple. Where's God's temple now? This is incredible. We are living in a privileged age of the church that God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, which is why we have to pursue holiness, people. How silly to envy people who do not have the Holy Spirit and what they have when we consider what we have. Or to somehow think that we're pretty good because our standard is somehow above those who don't have the Holy Spirit. Seriously, our standard should be something exceptional. Because we have the Spirit of God and and only, I guess, if we have hard hearts and would we ever not even sense the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. We will have the presence of God all the time. And having the presence of God means that in in the New Jerusalem, you'll never turn on a light. It actually doesn't say that there won't be a sun or a moon. It says you'll have no need of it. But it's like, if you're walking on a beach in full sun, it really doesn't make any sense to turn on your flashlight. Because what's a flashlight in full sunlight? It's meaningless and And the sun and moon may still be there and still be brilliant, but it really would have no need of it because it'll always be bright. What do people do in heaven? Um, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Mind has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And and I don't claim to know all that we would do, though it's something I'd like us to think about more yet in the future. But at least we know that we'll be busy and not bored. And I think there's some hint of that in these next verses. We've seen that, that uh, the new Jerusalem is big, it's beautiful, it's bright. I think it's busy. And I love it when everything starts with the same letter. B. The last one is that it's pure. Hmm. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is, a sh- is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's Let's try to take in what's all going on here. What will we be doing? Verse 24. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. 
This has puzzled many Bible readers because it seems to describe a political nation, nations and kings. The word for nations, however, is actually the word for Gentiles, just Gentiles. You never, Israel is never called the nations. And whenever it talks about the nations, it's really saying it's different from Israel, it's the nations. I think it's simply saying that we're going to be walking in and out. It's like we're going to be spending time out in the new heavens and the new earth, and then we can come walking into the new Jerusalem. And it'll be people from all backgrounds, ethnicities, races, eras of time. We've already seen in the book of Revelation the kind of people that populate heaven. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we know all kinds of people from everywhere are saved. And it says later, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, people, tribe, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so the nations are going to be coming in and out, and some of them will be former kings, people of importance. Of course, others are commoners. It's clearly these are commoners. It's it's every kind of people, but every kind of people that has come to faith in God, either before or after the cross, understanding that forgiveness comes only from him. You could say all the accumulated effort of serving Christ, of all people of all times, is deserving of praise, but we're going to take all that praise and we're going to walk into the new Jerusalem and all that praise is deposited. We're going to bring our honor, our splendor to who? God, because everything came from him. Everything we ever did, ever accomplished. There'll be Germans and Luxembourgers and Swedes and Russians and Hmong and Icelanders, and Chinese, and Kenyans, and Paraguayans. We're going to be so amazed at the grace of God and the way he worked through places like Open Door Bible Church, through our missionaries, our missionary budget, your personal support of missionaries, and it, it, it brought the gospel all over the world. And so right now we have the privilege of supporting ministries in Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, Indonesia, throughout Asia. And all this work is being done and all this glory is going to God. And it's like, it's it's invisible. You can't really see it. You know it glorifies God, but we're going to know it then. We're going to be actually seeing it, I think, walking in and out. And somehow that's going to be part of our praise is just to, Celebrate that. And on no day, verse 25, will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. <laughs> Never get tired. Whatever, whatever we are doing to serve or praise God is going to be endless. And no one's there. Verse 27, except believers, nothing impure. What's that last line say? Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's where we were at last week, wasn't it? The only way your name is written in the Lamb's book of life is if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God and Him alone. And so we will all be together, all believers of all times. And we're there not because we have been sinless. We, have, we are there because 
We were sinners saved by grace. There'll be no conflict in heaven. All believers will get along perfectly. Just, just, just you know, be careful now you don't spend the first hundred years apologizing for, to fellow believers. Just kidding, I don't think we have to apologize, but we'll be living in a perfect heaven in perfect harmony, and what will draw us together then is what should draw us together now. And that is the fact that our names are written in the book of life. Because what we all are is not right and wrong. What we all are is recipients of the grace of God. And that's what we have in common, and that's why all praise will go to him. How silly to, to grab for the praise ourselves when someday all the glory that matters will go to him. And that's where we will live forever. Let's pray as the worship team comes up. Heavenly Father, we can only begin to imagine what it will be like when that day comes. And we are in the presence, first of all, of you, our holy God, our perfect Savior, and in the presence with one another, absolutely united in our praise of you in your amazing grace that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, our God, we thank you, and I pray that we would begin to think of earth in light of our eternity and do on earth what matters forever. Call us, O oh God, to making an eternal difference so that we can begin today the business of heaven of bringing you glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.